morning, ladies. Um, hooray, here we are. Matthew 12. Um, if you remember, the, the previous chapter ended, Robin talked about Jesus losing his temper a little bit, but then kind of recovering his temper and God supplying him with a new burst of compassion for us, stubborn us, his stubborn listeners. And he invited them at the end of the, he invites us to come to him for rest. You know, come to, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come be yoked up with me, come obey and go in the direction I'm going and you paradoxically will find rest. And that's kind of where we pick up today. Um, we are not a well-rested people, generally speaking. I was talking to, um, it was girls high school swim season, right? So I was talking to this other dad, I've known that family a long time. And so I was just saying how, um, saying how, oh, you know, I, I have this little fantasy that my son, who never goes to any dances, never does, shh, right? Never does anything like that. I said, I wish he would ask your daughter to homecoming. And he said, he said, oh, you know, I just, I just don't know how she would do it. She's doing club swimming, she's doing high school swimming, she's taking six AP classes, she, she's up every night till past midnight doing homework, you know, um, the only time we ever get off from the swim season is a couple weeks in August, and, but in the summer we make her do extra math classes and all this stuff. And he said, I just, I just don't understand it because when I was in high school, I don't remember doing anything. I mean, I did some high school sports, I guess I had homework, but I don't really remember. So, and, which is kind of how I remember things. I remember my sister and I, we were latchkey kids, we'd come home, we'd do a little bit of homework, and then like we'd watch TV and read books and, you know, I don't know what we did. So, but that doesn't seem to be how it is. We are not a well-rested people. We, at our stage in life, don't seem to be very well-rested, and we seem to make it worse and worse for each generation that comes after. Um, <clears throat> so, so this is a good, a good subject for us today. We're going to start with, oh wait, first I have an announcement, sorry. See, this is what happens when I don't change the slide. Next Tuesday is our last, is our Thanksgiving slash Christmas Eastside Academy brunch. So those of you who like making food, bring food. Those of you who like making sweets, bring sweets. And um, yeah, there it is. And I didn't make those cookies. I found that picture, <laughs> FYI. So we've been watching the Great British Baking Show, of course. And yeah, you always feel inspired. You're like, I'm gonna go knead bread. And it never comes out quite as good. But anyway, there it is. All right, so Matthew, chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence. Right? David busted into the church and ate the priest's bread, um, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only the priests. I mean, how much worse is that, right? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless, right? Everybody on Sabbath church is working on Sunday is working on Sunday. Um, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. 
Then we go on. It was too many verses to put on one slide. And he went on from there and entered their synagogue. Same day, right? And behold, there was a man with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, what man of you, if he had one sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, maybe taking a selfie, right? Um, will not lay hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, whole, like the other. But the Pharisees went out and took counsel against him, how to destroy him. Okay. Um, you know, nowadays, the reason we have trouble getting our minds around this is because out of all the Ten Commandments, most of them have held up. We still think they're a good idea. But number four, nobody cares about anymore, right? I mean, look at our culture. Nobody cares about Big Commandment number four, which just to refresh your mind. <laughs> um, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, or your cattle, or the stranger who is within your settlements. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. Okay. Um, we, might, we might maybe think of Sunday as the day out of the week we pay a little bit of attention to God before the Seahawks kick off, right? Um, we'll either go to church or maybe we'll turn on our computer and watch it online, and that's about the extent of it. Um, you know, we're more likely, probably, depending on how big of a fan we are, to plan our day around the game, right, than around church. Who cares if you miss one Sunday, right? Um, maybe we'll have a family meal to mark the day. Not that that's in the commandment, but it's at least different than what we might do the rest of the week. Um, lots of us will still work on a Sunday, you know, whip out our laptop and do some work. Or lots of us will make someone else work because we want to eat out or go shopping or go to the movies. It just is not a thing anymore, right? Which is why when Jesus is accused of dishonoring the Sabbath, we really don't know what the big deal, why are they getting all bent out of shape? What is the big deal, right? We especially don't understand what is the big deal, right? I go to soccer games for my kids, I'm, you know, whatever, calm down. Um, I remember watching, uh, on it, Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire, remember? And his big deal was he was not going to run on the Sabbath. And I remember turning to Scott and saying, why doesn't he just take Fridays off, right? I mean, if, if you're going to have a day devoted to God, who cares if it's Sunday or Saturday or Monday or whatever? Like, people who work at church often take Monday or Friday off, right? Scott takes Friday, a lot of people take Monday. Um, so, yeah, what's a big deal? We don't care. So the Exodus verses give us three reasons for why it's a big deal, actually. The first one is they say keeping the Sabbath is an act of remembrance. It's an act of remembrance. Um, I don't know if you have noticed, as we get older, we become less good at remembering things. Um, so it is, a, it is a weekly act of remembrance to sort of make our focus Godward again, one more time. Um, in the busyness of life. Life, you want to pack your week out? Fine, pack it out. 
as long as you have that one day, that one seventh of your time that is rest and Godward focused, remembering him. Um, remembering his act of creation. It's interesting that they tie it, this idea of Sabbath, to creation, right? That God worked, 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 and Jesus says he's still working, he's always at work, right? But there, was, there is a point where God says, and this is enough, and this is good, right? So we remember God's act of creation and also his feeling of enoughness, right? This is enough, and this is good. And he was modeling for us, Exodus tells us, he, that was modeling for us this feeling of, okay, work is good, and there is a point at which enough is also good, right? This is enough, and this is good. Um, keeping the Sabbath is a sign of consecration to God. So, you know, if you remember with that first covenant, circumcision was a sign, but that's not one you can show in public all the time, right? But keeping the Sabbath is one that men and women and children and people living among them could observe, and people could say, huh, that's kind of different, right? Yes, please don't show me your circumcision, but I see that other outward sign that there is something different about this group of people. So it was an act of remembrance toward God. It was an outward sign to themselves and to others of their covenant with him. You can find that in Exodus uh, 31, 13 to 17. Um, and so even when they were building the tabernacle, they held up work on those days. It was kind of like an identity badge. Like, you know, oh, those Jewish people, they don't work on the Sabbath. Okay, third thing. It keeps us from becoming uh, workaholics or slave drivers. So workaholics, it's all directed inwardly, right? Like, I'm going to work, everything depends on me. If I don't do it, it's not going to happen. It's not, it's going to all fall apart. Scott has this tendency, and I have to remind him that this church predated you by years and years, and God willing, if you don't mess it up, it's going to go on for years and years after you, right? So it's like, if, if it's all revolving around you, something is wrong. That's not how it's meant to be. Um, we are not to become workaholics, even if we're working for God, right? We are not to become workaholics. And we are also not to become slave drivers. Notice God says, you can't just sit around remembering me and being a sign of covenant and then making someone else do the work for you, right? Your slaves, your kids. It'd be nice if I could make my kids, but I can't do that. But right, even, even your slaves and your servants, you give them the day off. Even your little pack animals, you give them the day off, right? You are not to become a workaholic yourself. You are not to become a slave driver of other people, making them work um, so you don't have to. Um, okay, so God is reminding us, when we work seven days a week, something gets neglected, right? The first thing to get neglected is always God. He's always the first one we sort of kick off, like, I don't got time to deal with that right now. Um, the second thing that gets neglected is usually family, right? My family will understand if I just have to power through for this season. Um, the third thing that gets neglected is community, right? Oh, we don't have time to do this, that, and the other because I'm powering through. Okay, uh, when we work seven days a week, we delude ourselves into thinking everything depends on us, and we forget that, that feeling that God had of enoughness. Like, you know what? This is enough. For right now, this is enough, and it's good. Um, and if we force other people to work seven days a week for us, we don't, we're not recognizing their needs for rest and for God and for family and community. So it's, it's a very egalitarian law 
that God is giving here, where it's like, not just are you valuable, and this is important to you being a whole person, but everyone in your society, even if they are your slaves, you treat them as equals on this one day a week, because you are all equal in needing this rest, and needing God, and needing family, and needing community, and that takes time. Okay, so if life sometimes feels feel crazy or nonstop, we can blame this loss of Sabbath. Um, yeah, kids have sports and activities on Sundays, even in the morning. Um, nothing stops. Bellevue Library recently expanded its hours because nobody could understand why doesn't it open till 1 p.m. on Sunday. I'm ready now, right? Um, we can't stop, and so we can't allow or understand others to stop. Why isn't the store open? Have you ever been, um, if you've ever been in Europe on a, on a weekend and gone to get something, it's like, it's closed? I remember one time, not even in Europe, in, I was in Michigan, and it was a Sunday, and I went to the, and the store wasn't open, and the restaurant wasn't open, and I thought, what the heck? What are people, Californians, supposed to do when they visit Michigan, and nothing's open? So, and you learn, right? You learn. You plan ahead, like the store will not be open Sunday, just like the Jews before the Sabbath, you plan ahead, and you stock up, and you make sure you're not out in the cold on Sunday. Um, but yes, when, when our culture loses that, we feel outraged, right? Why? Everyone else has got to work. Um, and again, you could argue, okay, everyone doesn't need to take their special day on Sunday, right? Seventh-day Adventists want to take it on Saturday. Jews take it on Saturday, fine. But what have we lost as a culture in that we don't all rest on the same day? What we have lost is there's never a time for rest, right? Everything is always going all the time. Um, so God had good reason to command the Sabbath. Look at us. We're like stressed out. We're harried. It's hard to find time for each other and for ourselves and forget about God. God just has to fit in the cracks. So um, how was the command of Sabbath applied in the Bible? How was work defined and what was forbidden? Let's take a quick look at that. So what was forbidden? Put yourself in the mindset of believing in Sabbath. Um, gathering food was forgiven. So when they were getting manna in the wilderness, God said on the day before the Sabbath, gather twice as much because you can't gather on um, the Sabbath. And so they extended that to be like, aha, you know, gathering food, harvesting food, not allowed. Um, gathering fuel or kindling a fire. I've got some verses there for when um, they find some poor sap gathering firewood. It's uh-oh, right? Remember what I said about never be the first person in the Bible to do something that might become a case study? Because you usually get stoned. So, and so the poor guy, like, arms full of firewood, and that was the end of him. Um, buying and selling. So we've got some verses. You know, you're not supposed to be engaging in commerce on the Sabbath. Um, making money, bilking other people for money, that kind of thing and then harvesting or other agricultural work. So these were all things, they looked, they found scriptural examples, and they said, aha, these are the things considered work that should not be done on the Sabbath. And so they took these biblically recorded prohibitions, and the later rabbis came to think about, well, by extension, by extrapolation, what else might that include that is forbidden work? And it eventually became um, 39 categories of things that were <clears throat> off limits. And that included things like weaving, right? Weaving, hammering, don't be hammering. Um, writing, don't be writing. Uh, basically anything, they, they looked at 
what were the skills involved in building the tabernacle? And if those were forbidden on the Sabbath, then clearly all those skills are in those categories. So they came up with 39 categories. So technically, Jesus and his disciples plucking heads of grain, clearly a no-no, right? Clearly a no-no. Um, it's the ban on agricultural work and the ban on gathering food. Um, and, you know, and we probably would have understood that better if Jesus had rented a threshing machine and forced all the disciples to harvest the field. And we probably would have felt like, well, yeah, that wasn't a good idea, Jesus, right? Because you're really doing work. But, um, but plucking a few heads of grain, I don't know. So Jesus has two counter-arguments. The first argument, he says, is the letter of the law can be superseded in the face of human need, right? And I don't know, if I were a Pharisee, I would have said, were they really going to starve to death if they didn't pluck a few heads of grain and eat them? I mean, I'm kind of on the Pharisee side on this one. I feel like, was that worth breaking the law over? I'm not sure. I mean, guys, just wait until we get into town and maybe somebody will give us something to eat. Um, you notice Jesus, with a little self, more self-control, Jesus wasn't plucking heads of grain. It was his disciples doing it, right? Um, so, but Jesus, of course, we know is the kind of guy who can go away in the wilderness and fast for 40 days. So, but apparently his disciples, like us, were like, I'm hungry, I'm getting angry. I'm going to just, just eat the fruit, right? Have you seen those Snickers commercials that have turned into monsters? Yeah, maybe the disciples were turning into monsters. And he thought, for the greater good, for Pete's sake, would you stuff something in your mouth, right? Um, okay, so greater human need. Second reason he gives is the letter of the law can be superseded by a greater service to God. Um, so he says, think about that example of David. Um, when David did an even worse one by going and eating the consecrated bread, right? Um, and when priests work on the Sabbath, they are breaking the Sabbath to serve a greater good, right? David was protecting God's vision of a kingdom, a future kingdom. He was God's chosen future king, right? He, he was supposed to keep himself alive because God had a plan for his life. Um, the priests, the people have got to be served. Somebody's got to work. On, on the Sabbath to make that happen, right? So when there is a greater need of service to God, then you can lay aside that law. Um, so those are the two reasons he give, gives. And so we think um, there's that sort of dodgy grain-eating case. But Matthew follows it up with what seems to be a more clear-cut case, right? Um, healing on the Sabbath. So, and we have a setup this time. Notice Jesus goes into the synagogue, because that's what he did all the time, but they're ready for him. They're like, uh-huh, you know, okay, grain eating, I'm not sure about that one, but what is he going to do about healing on the Sabbath? So they go and find withered hand man, right? Um, and they, it's a setup, and they bring withered hand guy to him, and they say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, we can all agree withered hand guy is not going to die if his hand is not healed on the Sabbath. He probably had that condition from birth. Or maybe he was running a threshing machine and got, you know, injured. But he's not going to die of this thing. Presumably he's had it a long time. And he just uses his other hand, right? This is not an emergency, Jesus. Surely withered hand guy can wait till tomorrow, right? Um, I was thinking about this, and so I thought, oh, I'm going to do a little research on this medical idea. And I found that um, the question still comes up if you're in very, very, very conservative Jewish circles. I thought you might find these quotes interesting. Um, these are modern day. Right? 
The act of showing up in a hospital and diagnosing patients in itself is not a violation of the Sabbath, even in non-emergency situations, since there are no creative acts involved in this. The problem arrives when the doctor must drive to the hospital, turn on machines, which is called kindling of light, or write, recording data, for the benefit of the patient. While these works would be permitted in an immediate, life-threatening situation, if the act has no direct bearing on saving the life of the patient, this would remain prohibited, right? If it's, you know, Jerry's broken out in a rash, then you don't need to go to the hospital and do all the stuff. You don't need to break the Sabbath for that. However, a Jewish doctor would be permitted to direct a non-Jewish assistant or nurse to do these acts for him. And I wanted to argue with him and said, look at Exodus. You are not permitted to direct your non-Jewish assistant to do that for you if you yourself don't believe in that. Um, even in a non-life-threatening situation. Okay, here's another one. They have this other guy, and they say, arguably the most authoritative decider of Jewish law in the 20th century. He permitted doctors who worked on Sabbath and were summoned by phone or pager while on call to pick up the phone, even if it was most likely not a life-and-death emergency, on the off chance that it could have been. What's more, he permitted doctors to use elevators, I'm not sure about the elevator problem. That's all machines. Why not elevators? Um, and to write, lest using the stairs or committing patient details to memory would negatively affect their patient's care. He even ruled that doctors could drive to the hospital to take care of a patient and then drive back home, even though there was no medical emergency, lest the doctor would not want to go to the hospital in the first place because then he'd have to spend the rest of the Sabbath at the hospital. Okay, so. These are not ancient, moldy questions irrelevant to people. These are very relevant questions that are still being argued today, uh, just not by us who think everyone should work 24-7, 365, right? Um, so Jesus answers this situation with a question. He says, well, if your sheep were taking that selfie and fell into a pit, um, wouldn't you pull it out? And the way he phrases it means, you know you would. You know you'd rescue your sheep, right? Because sheep are worth money. This is your livelihood. And he says, he says, of how much more value is a man than a sheep, right? And he expands his teaching on the Sabbath, right? So he, he says, okay, human need, greater service to God. He expands his qualifications on that law by saying it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. He turns the prohibition inside out, right? It's not a do not, do not, do not. It is also lawful to do good on the Sabbath. One way to worship God, one way to think of God and family and community is to do good to those parts of your life on the Sabbath. Um, if the work we do on the Sabbath, oh, there, that's beautiful. If the work we do on the Sabbath meets a human need or allows someone to worship God, or results in their greater good, that work is lawful. So therefore, withered hand guy could be healed on the Sabbath. Because, you know, this would this is wonderful. This is for the greater good. He's probably going to be very thankful to God that this happened to him. Um, it's a good thing. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So we think, oh, good one, Jesus. You sure show them, right? Um, where this gets a little touchy for us, since we don't care about Sabbath, where this gets touchy for us is where we have religious rules that we hold dear. We may not hold Sabbath dear, but we all have some that we hold dear. Um, 
would Jesus also qualify those in the same way? Uh, would he even object to those in the same way? It's a little bit of an alarming thought for us, right? Think about dress codes for pastors and flock. Um, depending on when you were born and what you grew up with, this rule means different things to different people. You know, maybe you have had a parent who said, no, you are not wearing that to church. To church you wear this, 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 and this, right? And so that is ingrained in you as a rule, as a rule. Um, at our old church, when our old senior pastor came, uh, everyone wore gloves, right? And uh, this was a while ago, I grant you. Everyone wore gloves, and it made a big fuss when the gloves started going away, because that had become a rule in that church. At this church, you wear gloves, right? Um, at the crazy church I first went to when I became a Christian, women had to wear dresses. You had to wear a dress, and you had to wear some sort of covering on your head, because they took very literally that verse from Paul about women should have their heads covered, right? They didn't seem to care about the one where he said, don't braid your hair. Somehow braids were not as bothersome. Um, don't, don't wear pearls. <laughs> they seem to get over those ones. But you covered your head, darn it. Um, and so for some of us, the rule, the rule in our head might be you don't wear jeans, you don't wear shorts, um, you don't wear ripped clothing. You don't. You don't. You don't wear anything that might be construed as casual, right? That is. That is the rule in our head. And what is the reason? If someone said, "Well, what is the reason for that rule?" Um, people would say, and they do say, you know, it's showing reverence for God. Maybe your parents smacked you and made you change and said, "We well, show reverence for God and we wear this certain outfit," right? It is showing reverence for God. A very good reason. We want to show God reverence, unless. Right? Unless, unless Jesus brings up the unless, right? Unless our rule is superseded by a human need, or by allowing people to worship God, or by the greater good, right? Is it more important, Jesus would ask, to show God reverence by how we dress, or to be allowed to worship God and draw near to him, even if we aren't dressed how other people might culturally want us to be dressed, right? Then we feel like, oh, break my rule, right? And this is how the Pharisees felt. This is important to us. This is a rule. This is how we worship God. And then you come in, Jesus, and you qualify things, and now what's going to happen, right? Um, is it more important to worship God with a certain style of music or to let people worship God in their own musical language, whether we happen to find that language boring or repugnant, right? Which is more important? Jesus would say that they worship God. You don't got to like their music, but it's drawing them closer to God. So let them. Um, is it more important that we approve of the lifestyle and behavior of those who come through the church door, or that we acknowledge that they are coming through the church, church door because they need love, and they need community, and they are looking for God's presence? And it is God's problem to worry about their lifestyle and behavior, right? Scott may say something on the pulpit. The Holy Spirit may say something to them. We don't have to be the person who says to them, I don't like that about you, right? Let them come to God and let God deal with it. And just like when God is dealing with the things he does not particularly love in us that, are, um, that need a little work, Sometimes it takes a little time. I don't know how many of you were um, instantly 100% sanctified the first time you walked through the church door. But um, 
if you're like me, I'm sure God thinks, well, here she comes again. <laughs> well, I guess we'll work on another 0.000042% of her sanctification. It is, I am God's problem. I am God's problem. Just let me come worship. I'm God's problem. So, okay. So, yeah. When our rules are broken. Oh, sorry. Skip that one. Okay. When our rules are broken, we have to think, okay, what what really offends me? If you wonder what your rules are, what really offends me in church? And I feel like, <gasps> that shouldn't be happening in church, right? What is that rule? Is my rule biblical, right? Is my rule biblical? Where would you find it in the Bible? Um, has it been interpreted other ways throughout history? Has it been interpreted other ways throughout history? For example, um, I have a friend who says her dad does not like any music in church that postdates Bach. Okay? <laughs> a lot of music has come after Bach, and some of it very worshipful, right? But in his book, if it comes after Bach, it is not worshipful music, right? But, you know, there's no chapter and verse about that, right? And there are cultural shifts that happen, and it is okay, because if what is happening is a shift in the culture so that people can keep coming to God, that's okay. Jesus would say that is the greater good, is people coming to God. Let them come. So think about that when our rules are broken, and we all have them. Okay, we gotta Okay, we gotta get cracking. Matthew 12, verse 15, onward. Jesus, aware of this, aware that everyone was now mad at him, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. Wouldn't you have wanted to be there on that day? Um, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit on upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Oh, I have a verse. Oh, I wasn't supposed to read that much? Sorry. Okay, Isaiah. It's that he won't wrangle and cry aloud, he won't break the bruised reed. Okay. Um, very interesting. Sometimes, like with withered hand guys, Jesus performs his healings in full sight of other people, right? And sometimes he tells people, or sometimes he heals them and he says, but don't tell anyone, which is so bizarre, right? And, and Matthew has this Isaiah verse about, he says, the promised Messiah is going to want to get his message across without getting involved in fruitless debates, wrangling, right? Jesus got sucked into some wrangling this morning. Um, or using bullhorns, crying aloud in the streets, or drawing undue attention to himself, raising his voice in the streets, right? He says he's not going to trample those who are poor in spirit or beaten down or desperate. He will patiently restore justice. But there is something so revolutionary and disturbing about Jesus' kingdom that he creates waves wherever he goes, right? When did it ever do Jesus much good to say, oh, but don't tell anyone, right? That, it just didn't work very well for him. Um, okay, so we're going to move on. From the Sabbath controversy, we're going to move to the next controversy. The where does Jesus' power come from controversy. Um, some of you may know, toward the end of his life, Thomas Jefferson, he very famously cut up his Gospels with a pen knife, and he sliced out anything that struck him as supernatural, or miraculous, and that meant all the healings out the window, right? Feeding of the 5,000, get rid of it. The resurrection, no, right? And what remained, he called, the life and morals 
of Jesus of Nazareth. So he's like, you know, if you just take out all the hoo-ha, those stories that can't possibly be true, what is left? Are there still some good nuggets we can get from Jesus? The thing is, I was thinking about this, and I'm thinking, if Jesus had never done anything except for, like, taught, um, he probably would not have riled people up in the same manner um, and gotten himself killed. So in a, in, in a sort of backwards argument, the fact that he made waves wherever he went, that he made everyone so angry they wanted to kill him, is actually proof that he was doing something, right? That he actually was healing and delivering people because it was making people furious. It was making, something was going on in those times with that guy that were, that were just making everyone furious. So if you cut it all out and say none of it happened, then what was everyone so upset about, right? Who cares? Nobody is trying to kill Scott. He's just teaching, right? Um, okay, so, oh, oh no, we don't have time, we're not there yet. Okay, um, so let's look at verses 22. Okay, then a blind and dumb demoniac was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the dumb man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. And I'll lose my place. Ah, how then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay, we're not going to go the strong man yet. <coughs> so Jesus is saying it would be counterproductive for Satan to heal and deliver people from bondage. Because his mission statement, as we know from John, Satan's mission, mission statement is to steal, kill, and destroy. But if God has come, and God's mission statement is that we would have life and have it more and more abundantly, then whatever works toward those goals shares in God's mission statement. Even if they don't mean no Jesus per se, right? Because your sons are casting out demons. And unwittingly, they are sharing in God's mission statement. Unwittingly, they are working on God's side. Okay, sorry we cannot spend more time on these. Okay, now we get to the strong man. Did we get there's no slide. Okay. Um, okay. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. We're not there. 31. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever says a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Okay. And you think, oh, what on earth is blaspheming the Holy Spirit? And we don't want to do it because it's unforgivable, right? Um, and whole talks could be given on this subject. But in this context, specifically here, Jesus is implying that when you attribute the saving work of the Holy Spirit to the devil, you are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So when you say like this, 
that you are doing the work of God by the power of Satan, that is a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Um, it is a here we go. It is a willful decision not to acknowledge God and God alone as Savior. So we have step one. It is refusing to believe that God alone saves, right? If you refuse to believe that, then you go looking. Well, if God is not the only way to be saved, how else is this happening, right? So step two. Um, therefore, if you don't believe God is the one who saves, you don't ask for forgiveness, you don't acknowledge your need for God, right? I don't need God to save me, therefore I don't need to ask him for anything, right? And if you have not done that, then you don't receive, right? If you don't ask God, forgive me, I help me, save me, then he's not going to force it on you. You will not receive the necessary forgiveness. And then you're not saved, right? You're not forgiven when you don't ask for forgiveness. It is a vicious cycle. So when you, so you say, it's not God doing the saving. This is Satan at work, right? I don't need this kind of God if that's how he works. I don't like how he works. Therefore, I'm not going to ask for his help or his forgiveness, and therefore, you're not going to receive it, right? And so your sin remains unforgiven. You, you, you can't be forgiven what you don't ask for forgiveness for. So I hope that makes some kind of sense. I thought in the context, that's, that's what he was getting at. Um, in John chapter 6, he, Jesus puts it this way. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And everyone is just disgusted by this imagery and Jesus' insistence that you can't find your way to life except through the complete appropriation and incorporation with Jesus. They are offended by that. What do you mean that is the only way I can find life? Is by going whole hog with you. Um, so lots of people at that moment say, well, I don't want to follow you anymore. I don't like that. I don't like it. And Jesus asks Peter, do you also want to go away? And Peter says, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life, right? Jesus, if you're the only key to that door, then I've got to go through that door, even if I don't like it, right? I've got to accept it. So to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to insist, God, you are not the source of salvation and life. And when you insist on that, you block yourself from that very salvation and life. Okay. 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 Verses 33 to 37. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. And we've learned how to say it in Greek, didn't we? Because didn't uh, Tom Brewer say it in Greek in that little video? Um, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil man, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, men will render account for every careless word they utter. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Um, otherwise known as the scariest passage for Christina in the whole Bible. Um, <laughs> Okay, where was I? Yes, so Jesus is returning to this idea of a tree and its fruit, which we talked about in Matthew 7. Um, yeah, and whenever I think, hey, I'm getting more sanctified, all I have to do is read this passage and see that I've stalled out again. Because um, I think, oh my gosh, when I think of all the careless, evil things I say, it's like, oh, that's what's inside me, like a tissy pop. 
like nasty stuff inside me and it still comes out and so it's very disturbing. Um, yeah, when my heart overflows, it's not a pretty sight. Some people, when their hearts overflow, really sweet things come out. That is not me. Um, so at least I'm not blaspheming the Holy Spirit because I know, Lord, have mercy because I am in such big trouble unless you have mercy on me. So we're good, Holy Spirit. Right? Um, I know only God can fix me because I've been working at it for years and years and not getting much better. Okay, so the religious leaders, they ask for a sign in verse 38 after this, and Jesus gets irritated. Um, the whole passage can be paraphrased as... Um, this is when they're like, oh, would you give us a sign? And he's like, oh, you're going to give a sign to Jonah, right? It can be paraphrased as, the resurrection will be the sign to you, but what does it matter, right? You wouldn't know a sign if it ran over you in the road, is basically what he says to them. And we know that it is entirely possible to miss seeing the work of God. That's, there's a reason why we always are praying, Lord, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, because we can be so blinkered and blinded, that we can miss everything. Just everything. Um, okay, now Jesus, oh my gosh. Jesus returns to the earlier discussion of demons being cast out, and this time he, he takes the cast out demons point of view. Kind of very creative of him. Let's keep reading. Oh, I don't even have a verse there for you, so follow along in your Bible. Okay. La -di -la -di -la -ba -ba. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he passes through waterless places seeking rest. But he finds none. Then he says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and brings with him seven other spirits, more evil than himself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. So shall it be also with this evil generation. Um, okay, so what I was talking about is... It is possible to be healed by God and experience his power in your life and not benefit from it. Not benefit, right? To be blinkered and blinded and not see God at work. Yes. Okay. Um, it's possible to be healed and not bear any fruit. I mean, these are a little, a little bit alarming. And, um, and it's possible to be healed and yet end up further away from God in the end. So how does this happen? We don't want this to happen. How can this happen? Um, one is, consider the context of this chapter, you may not acknowledge that it was God, right? Oh, if you're doing this work, that's somehow it's the work of the devil. Right? You're doing the work of the devil, right? You don't acknowledge it was God who did the healing. Um, you say, oh, it was my own willpower. Oh, it was the power of science and technology. Oh, it was this new diet I tried, right? you don't acknowledge that God might have been doing some healing work in your life. That's the number one way you could not benefit from it. Um, and we learned that being healed is not the same thing as bearing fruit. You can be healed and not be changed by it. And that kind of follows from the first, right? If you are not healed and acknowledging your healer, then you're finally not going to be changed. Um, and if that healing doesn't result in you drawing nearer to God, you're not better off, and in fact, you're worse off he says, um, because you're vulnerable to the same thing or worse happening to you. We have seen this, haven't we, in our lives, if there is a sin we struggle with, if we know someone who struggles with addiction and they manage to get cleaned up, 
but they did it through whatever, and then they relapse, and it's worse, right? It's harder. Um, and what makes it harder is, with each relapse, you begin to believe you will never be freed, and you will never be healed, right? So you begin to go farther away from thinking, God can help you. And once you think God can't help you, then you have a hard time getting help from God, right? You think God can't do it. Um, so yeah, see that picture of a clean house? That was not my house, just FYI. Um, so, you know, we often think, 30 seconds, we often think, oh, it would have been so lucky to live in Jesus' time, right? We could have followed him around, we could have gotten healed, like on days like this, just rush him, right? get healed, we could have gotten all the teachings from the horse's mouth, but what this tells us is not everyone healed by him, or fed by him, or taught by him, continued to want a relationship with him, right? And he says, no wonder he said in the Sermon on the Mount, you are blessed if you are beaten down by life and not satisfied, because then you're going to keep seeking, right? If you just get that thing you wanted, you get that meal, you get the, oh, my withered hand is all better, right? And then you just go off on your happy way, you've actually ended up with less than you had to begin with, right? He knew it was going to be the people who had this sort of, this thing that would not be healed, right? This ache that would not go away. Those were the people who were going to keep following him and seeking him. Those were the people who were actually going to be blessed, right? Um, we pray more, we seek more when we are frightened and grieving and desperate and not when we are fat, dumb, and happy. And we know that's the truth, right? And so we may say, oh, I wish I were these people and I could have just tackled Jesus and been healed or thrown my loved ones at him and they would have been healed, but they wouldn't necessarily have been better off. This is what Jesus is saying in this whole chapter. I can heal you. It may not make you better off. You may be worse off if you don't recognize it is your need for God that you need more than anything. Okay, so this chapter ends appropriately with a call to relationship. They say, oh Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside. And he says, who are my mother and brothers? The people who obey me, who do the will of God, right? I think I, oh yes, I have a verse which I don't have time to read, right? Um, God wants relationship with us. He doesn't want us all to be healthy and like smiley and he wants relationship with us. That's his priority. And he says, this is going to come when you follow me and when you obey me. Then you're my mother and brothers, right? Um, being healed of something may get your attention. It may thrill you for a little while.